Uh, good morning. Uh, our Bible reading this morning uh, is from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, which can be found on page 1011 uh, in the Church Bibles. Uh, page 1011, that's Mark 9, verses 2 to 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them, except Jesus. As they were coming down at the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bruce. Morning, everyone. I'm Nathan, if we haven't met, keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9, and uh, we'll pray before we begin. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Pray, Lord, that this morning you might set our hearts to your word. Amen. I uh, recently heard an interview uh, with a guy named Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. If you've never heard of him, he's like the Don Bradman of ice hockey. And if you've never heard of Don Bradman, I don't know what to tell you. But uh, Wayne Gretzky played in the NHL through the 80s and the 90s. Upon retirement, he held no less than 61 different league records. 61. Many of which they said would never be broken. And uh, that's actually how it's played out. 23 years on from his retirement, he still holds 58 league records. Isn't that incredible? He's not just a legend in ice hockey, but sport generally. I was talking to Bruce this morning and he, he referred to him as the goat of goats. The goat of goats. So there it is. Now, in this interview, um, Gretzky tells a story from a few years back. He was attending what's known as Canada Day in the centre of London, of all places. It's a bit like a festival. There's ice rinks set up. Um, there's Canadian food being served. There's Canadian bands playing music. 
Uh, and he was there with his two kids. And they decided to sit down and, and watch an exhibition ice hockey match. And he finds himself sitting next to a guy who was very intently watching the game in front of them. But nevertheless, uh, Gretzky decided to try and make some conversation. How about this game? Pretty intense, eh? He's got a strong Canadian accent. Uh, yeah, it is, the guy replied, but stared straight ahead at the game. So Gretzky tried again. So uh, you're having fun today? Uh, yeah, it's great. Again, the, the guy's eyes are locked on the game. So Gretzky gives up, eventually tells the boys, ah, you know, it's time for us to leave. And as they, they leave, one of the boys notices what this guy next to them was wearing. You going to sign his shirt, Dad? Turns out the bloke was wearing a Gretzky hockey jersey. If you can believe it. And Gretzky just is like, I gave him two chances to turn to me. I ain't giving him a third. We're out of here. And off they went. Can you imagine that? Imagine to have been so close to glory and yet not realized it. I bet that guy still has no clue that he once watched a hockey game with the greatest player to ever pick up a hockey stick. It's two parts funny, one part tragic. But you know, when it comes to us and Jesus, if, if somehow we miss His glory, if we fail to recognize who He truly is, now that's all parts tragic, isn't it? All parts tragic. We are coming back to the Gospel of Mark together this term, and this is a book that is obsessed with the question of Jesus' identity. The entire first half of Mark's gospel is driven by a singular question. Who is this man? Who is this man? It sits behind almost everything that happens in the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel. And then Mark finally hits us right between the eyes, the end of chapter eight. And it's one of the the pivotal moments in the gospel. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks his disciples. You are the Messiah. Peter replies. There it is. Mark's gospel's been building to that moment since the very beginning, and the answer is finally unveiled for his readers. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited saviour. But there's a twist. There's always a twist. See, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one, the one sent by God to rescue his people. But what none of the disciples realise is the way this Messiah was planning to save. It's not through conquest, it's not through leading a rebellion, but through His own suffering and death. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus said, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. We are so familiar with these words and and this idea that, that we don't even blink when we hear them, but such a statement would have been un thinkable for those who are closest to Jesus. They just couldn't wrap their heads around how salvation fit with suffering. And it's really into this fog that we now step into our story today. Six days after Jesus had dropped this bombshell of his coming death, he decides to set off up a mountain with three of his closest disciples. Mark really is inviting us this morning to tag along on this journey. And it's effectively kind of plays out in three steps. Starts with with them going up the mountain, them being on the mountain, and then them coming back down the mountain, up, on, and down. I wonder, are you up for tagging along on this journey? 
I hope so. Yeah, good. Three of you are. This is a picture of uh, Mount Hermon as it appears today. Uh, many commentators believe this may well have been the mountain that Jesus and the disciples uh, went walking up. It is the tallest peak in Israel. Um, you can actually ski in the winter. Um, it's so high. There's a, a chairlift that can take you up. You can also do the hike uh, if you're up for it. Apparently, it takes would have taken Jesus and the disciples a better part of a day in order to, to go from the base to the top. And uh, the way that Mark sets this story up, it, we're really meant to expect that something's about to happen. Like, this is not just Jesus out for a stroll with his mates, trying to get his steps up. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Now, if, if you know your Old Testament, you know that mountaintop moments were always where big stuff happened. You might be able to think of a few examples. Abraham is up on a mountain when God spares the sacrifice of his son Isaac. Moses is on Mount Horeb when God speaks from the burning bush. And he's also up on Mount Sinai when God gives him the Ten Commandments. Elijah is up on Mount Carmel when God dramatically defeats the prophets of Baal. It's like this theme that runs all throughout the Bible. Mountaintops are where big moments happen and often they're moments of great revelation. God shows up in some dramatic fashion. And so we come to this mountaintop moment and it doesn't disappoint. Mark tells us that as they reach the summit, end of verse 2, there Jesus, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Wow. Now, Transfigured is a strange word. In fact, the only time we really use the word is for this story, transfiguration. The Greek word that Mark uses in the original manuscript, metamorpho, is where we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. So, transfigured means to be changed or transformed. Mark tells us that, that Jesus' appearance was suddenly altered. Dramatically, he got bright. His clothes turn a blinding white. In Matthew's gospel, that records the same event, Jesus' face was said to also shine with resplendent light. So, what's going on here? Well, the disciples are bearing witness to none other than the glory of God. And this isn't just Jesus reflecting God's glory. You might recall that's what happened to Moses' face. When Moses comes face to face with God, he comes down the mountain and his face is shining, reflecting the glory that he'd just witnessed. That's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't reflecting God's glory. He's actually the source of it. It's coming from him. Jesus' divine glory is breaking through. I uh, took this photo one night um, just because I thought it looked cool, the lights were off in the lounge room, but as you can see, there's a bright light right behind the door. And so, there's, there was just beams of light that were, were escaping, really, around the space of the door. And in a way, I think it's a bit like what's happening here in Mark. Jesus' glory had been there all along, the whole time. It had just been kind of hidden in the background, behind His humanity, veiled by His humanity. 
But for this singular moment, the only time in the gospel account where this kind of takes place, Jesus' glory breaks out for a second. Peter, James, John, they get a glimpse of what has been behind the door this whole time. Glory. Now, God's glory is a hard thing to define, to, to grasp. It, it's not just a part of God, it's, it's actually all that God is. And throughout the Bible, the light of God's glory, the physical light, it's, it's the outward expression of His excellence. It's the manifestation of His majesty. And into this, in, into this concept of glory, we pour all of God's magnificence, all of His transcendent worth, all of His loveliness, we pour the grandeur of, of all of His countless perfections. That's glory. It's quite a mouthful. And it's because our words, our words can't do it justice. I mean, Mark, bless him, he tries his best. Verse 3, how does he put it? His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. It's like, it's kind of silly, a silly way to put it, but you can forgive him because it's an impossible task. God's glory is uncapturable. It, it sits beyond the fullness of our comprehension and our description, it, as it should, because this is God we're trying to describe, right? But just take a moment to consider this. When you think of Jesus, right, when you picture Him in your mind, is His resplendent glory ever what you first think of? Is this how you think of Him? On that note, what, I mean, what, what image do you have of Jesus? In my experience, the image that we carry around of Him ends up being the one that we're just most comfortable with, which kind of makes sense, I guess. So that might be Jesus the wise. So we cherish everything that He taught, His words. It might be Jesus the powerful, because we just love all those accounts of His miracles. It might be Jesus the compassionate, because we just love the attention and the care that He gives to the, the social outcasts and the downtrodden. Maybe it's Jesus the sacrificial. We picture Him giving His life up, dying in our place, setting us free from sin. could be Jesus the risen, the one who rose three days later and in doing so promises us our own resurrection. I wonder which is your Jesus, which one first comes to mind for you? There's nothing wrong with any of those because, I mean, they, they capture a part of who Jesus was. But is it ever the glorious Jesus that we see here in the pages of Mark 9? The one who's up here on the mountaintop. I mean, what impact would that have on your relationship with Him if it was? Think about that. What difference could it make if we actually got how glorious Jesus truly is. Now, here's the funny thing. I mean, I'll admit, I actually rarely think of Jesus like this. But the truth is, it's this Jesus that we're going to meet when He finally returns. So, when John gets a glimpse of Jesus in the book of Revelation, of the end of all things, John sees this transfigured version of Jesus, white bright, shining in brilliance. 
And so on that day when we come face to face, it's going to be with Jesus the glorious, as he was before the creation of the world, with all his splendor, all his majesty, all his greatness, just as we see Mark depict here in the pages of this gospel. A glimpse of him as he truly is and as he will appear to us on that day when we come face to face. Is this your Jesus? Jesus and his disciples are now well and truly up on the mountain. They've got to the top, they've reached the summit. Jesus has started shining and then suddenly their party of four becomes a party of six. Verse four, take a look. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses. You know, it's hard to know how the disciples came to realize who these two were. Like they they wouldn't have been wearing name tags, right? So maybe they overheard Jesus refer to them by name. Maybe Jesus cleared things up as they were walking home. But whatever the case, (laughs) it is impossible to deny that this was some company that had just turned up. Some company. Really doesn't get much bigger than these two Old Testament heavyweights. But why these two and why now? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you'll probably be aware that both of these gentlemen had their own massive mountaintop moments, right? They knew the drill. Both of them were also the source of profound messianic expectation. Both of them had departed this life in unusual circumstances. Elijah got carried off in a chariot of fire. Uh, Moses got carried off before he died by God to some unknown location. And both of these two had actually also come to represent really the two pillars upon which the entire Old Testament rested, the law and the prophets. So there's a big going on with these two showing up. And it must have been quite the sight for Peter James and John, right? First, Jesus starts glowing, and then suddenly there's Moses, who'd been dead for 1,400 years, and and then Elijah, who'd been gone for 900 years, and then they start having a yarn with their rabbi. (laughs) Like, no wonder they were freaked out. Peter stammers something about, why don't I make tents for everyone? It's like, (laughs) okay, mate. (laughs) But, you know, I wonder what you would have said if you were in his position, (laughs) God's got something to say, though, and it's far more profound than what Peter contributes. Verse 7, take a look with me. A cloud appears, covers them, then the voice of the Almighty rings out. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. Remember the pivotal question in this gospel, who is this man? Chapter 8, Peter declares, you are the Messiah, And then the very next chapter, we get God giving us His answer to that question. This is my Son, whom I love. Mark's trying to make it as clear as possible for us. Suddenly the cloud lifts. I love the way the Gospel puts this in verse 8. It says, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Except Jesus. I love that. Only he remains. It's a bit like uh, at an awards show, if you're into the punishment of sitting through those things on TV, something like the Oscars, perhaps, if you ever watched that. You know, at the end of the night, 
They always save the biggest award for last, the best picture award, and uh, they announce it, and like every man and his dog comes up onto stage, the cast, some of the crew, some random producers, other people who've just watched the movie, you know, it's like <laughs> everyone comes up, and there's always that awkward moment, like 50 people on stage looking around, who's going who's gonna to take the mic, you know, who's going to speak? And then everyone takes a step back out of the spotlight, so it's really just the director standing at the center at the mic, and it's like, that's appropriate, because this is the, the one ultimately responsible for really pulling the whole film together. That's the kind of sense we get here in the gospel. The cloud lifts, and only Jesus remains. It's almost as if Moses and Elijah have stepped back, because it turns out that this Jesus, he actually is the director of the universe, singular in stature, without equal or peer. He is before all things, Paul writes in Colossians. And in Him, all things hold together, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. It's a great word, supremacy, isn't it? He might have the supremacy. That's what we're seeing here on top of the mountain. Having rubbed shoulders with the greatest heroes of Israel's history, now only Jesus remains. Why? Because He is none other than the ultimate fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, of everything that had come before. Jesus has the supremacy. But I wonder if sometimes our problem is we, we let our stage stay cluttered. You know, Jesus might be there, he might even be right there in the middle, but we also put all this other stuff up there alongside him, vying for attention. I wonder if you struggle with that. Surely, we all struggle with that from time to time, and in different ways. So, you know, for some of us, Jesus is not your only security, because you've also got your wealth up there on stage next to him, to keep you secure as well. For others, Jesus will not be your only pleasure. You've allowed sexual immorality to remain up on stage too. Jesus is not the only source that you'll turn to for your self-worth. You'll also go and sacrifice all manner of things in pursuit of your own success, looking for your own glory. The list goes on, right? And fill in the blanks for your own situation. What does your stage look like at the moment? Who is on it? Because, you know, it's, it's exactly what our world does all the time. Filling the stage, all sorts of things. Whatever they think is going to make their life better or longer or more comfortable. But if you follow the Lord Jesus, if you've given your life to Him, you've actually made the decision to clear your stage. It should be empty of everything. Bar one, your Lord, the only one in all the cosmos who is worthy of your life's spotlight. Center stage belongs to Him. So there should only be one voice coming through that mic. This is my son whom I love, God says. Listen to Him. 
Listen to Him. I mean, that should really come as no surprise to anyone that's been paying attention because if, if Jesus really is bursting with divine glory, if Jesus really does stand alone in supremacy as the beloved Son of God, then why would we choose to listen to anyone else? I wonder how that's been going for you this week. You know, whose voice have you been listening to? Have you been emptying your stage of everything and everyone apart from Him? Jesus the Supreme. Is that your Jesus? All that's left is the trip back down the mountain, which is where we're going to end as well. Fancy that. Uh, the family and I went camping last week, and uh, it was great, up to Southwest Rocks, Fantastic. It's actually been ages since I've gone proper camping. Uh, I grew up doing a bit of camping, but I've just come back into it, and I kind of forgot just how much of a dud that last day is when you're camping, right? You wake up, you have your coffee, and then it's all kind of downhill from there. Hours packing down the tent, packing up the car. There's hours in holiday traffic stuck trying to get across Hexham Bridge, and then when you finally do make it home, there's still hours to go unpacking the car, cleaning all the gear, and the endless loads of washing to do. It's like, it's a real dud way to end a good trip. And given all the crazy stuff that's taken place on the mountain, it is easy to read the final verses of this trip as they come down to think something similar, right? Like as if, as if the story ends on a bit of a low note. Actually couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, it's the coming down the mountain that just may be the most remarkable thing about this whole story. I know you don't believe me, but let's see. Mark's account is actually set up for us to wonder whether Jesus is about to leave. I only learned that this week. But commentators point out that, that it has all the hallmarks of an ascension story. It's kind of it's going that direction. Ascension stories weren't uncommon in the ancient world, whether you're talking about Egypt, whether you're talking about Rome, often the ruler would be taken away, you know, ascend to heaven somewhere. It's kind of got those marks to it. And then you add in the appearance of Elijah and Moses, who I said before were two guys who were mysteriously whisked away by God. Interesting. And it also might help us explain Peter's offer to build them shelters, makes a bit more sense when you realise maybe he's just wanting to stop them from leaving, because that's what he thinks is about to happen. Mark sets the story up for us to wonder if, if this is it, Jesus is about to depart. And so the great surprise is not just that Jesus is hiding divine glory, as surprising as that might be, especially for the disciples, and it's not just that Jesus is singular in supremacy, the great surprise here is that this supreme and glorious Jesus, He doesn't leave. He remains. He goes back down the mountain and He sets His face towards Jerusalem, knowing full well what that's going to mean for Him, His own suffering and death. It's actually all there in the conversation about Elijah at the end, verses 11 through 13. As they're, they're making their way down the mountain, the disciples want to know uh, what the prophet Malachi meant 400 years prior when he prophesied these words. 
See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. They'd just seen Elijah on the mountain. You can imagine they're now wondering, well, has this prophecy just been fulfilled? Fair question. But in verse 13, Jesus answers him. He says, Elijah has come and they've done everything, they've done to him everything they wished. Now, of course, Jesus is not referring to what they'd just witnessed. He's talking about John the Baptist, which is how Mark's gospel begins, actually. John, who was the Elijah-like prophet who came to prepare the way for the Lord, for Jesus. Elijah's come, Jesus tells him. The shocking implication of that being, all that's now left is for the great and dreadful day of the Lord, just like Malachi prophesied. A day that was to be of bitter judgment and destruction, and a day that would begin with Jesus being hung on a cross to die as the first taste of God's great and dreadful judgment. Friends, this is exactly what confounds Peter in the previous chapter. How could God's promised one also be promised to die? How could the Saviour also be the sufferer? But friends, herein lies the confounding foolishness, the beauty and the majesty of our gospel. It's the story of a God who veils His glory in order to draw near to us. A God who comes down the mountain, who stays the course even in the shadow of the cross. This is our God who allowed His glory to be spat upon and His supremacy to be mocked who let his glory be beaten, bloodied, pierced by thorn and nail to all outward appearances, to every metric of measure. Jesus' death looks like the massacre of majesty. And yet, for all time, the death and resurrection of God's Son actually stands as the greatest demonstration of his glory and his supremacy. For it's here at the cross and the empty tomb that we see the vast depth of God's love for us. It's here at the cross and the empty tomb that we see God's fierce commitment to judge sin and evil once and for all. It's here at the cross that, and the empty tomb that God accomplishes what no one else could possibly have accomplished. He puts death to death. Far from diminishing His glory or challenging His supremacy, the sufferings of the Son, Jesus' death and resurrection, it's the moment that God's glory shines its brightest. He is the stunning star, sitting at the center of history, at the center of eternity, of all that is physical and all that is spiritual, of everything that has been, of everything that is, and of everything that is still yet to come. Only He remains. Friends, this is our God. This is our Jesus and he is worthy of our praise. Is he not? Is he not? So instead of us closing in quiet prayer, we're actually going to close by standing and praising him together. I'm going to invite the band to come out and get ready to lead us in our next song. But before that, I've got the words on the screen for us to say. These are words that King David used, actually, to praise God before the assembly of Israel, and we're going to do that together now. So let's stand and proclaim these words loudly and boldly and with the confidence of knowing that we are praising the God 
whose glory is his alone. Let's say these words together. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we're going to continue praising God in song. As we sing this song, Man of Sorrows, which reflects on the cross, hold that image of the glorious Jesus right alongside as we sing these words together.